Hare Krishna to all the participants for today's uh, wonderful seminar. And uh, I welcome uh, especially our speaker, Dr. Howard J. Resnick, His Holiness Hridayanand Das Goswami Maharaj, and also the wonderful uh, uh, participants. So uh, today's session uh, is basically a series. Uh, this is the first session in the series. And uh, as you know, the series name is uh, Where the Conflict Lies. It's a three-session series. And the today's session is about, uh, is atheism uh, rational and natural? So this particular session is going to be around, uh, 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 our speaker will speak about 15-20 minutes on the topic, and then the floor will be open for question-answer session, right? So uh, I'll just give a little brief about the uh, session. Uh, and then we'll start. I'll start with a quotation from uh, Richard Dawkins. He's a famous, uh, you know, biologist from Oxford. He says that I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. So uh, he thinks that uh, uh, really all people who believe in religion or who the people who are atheists those who believe in God, basically, uh, they are satisfied with uh, not understanding the world, uh, uh, meaning uh, thereby that uh, they are propagating the ignorance in one sense. Uh, in contrast with this, I will quote another quotation from, uh, uh, you know, very famous philosopher, Antony Flew. Uh, in his book, he writes uh, that uh, the book name is There is a God how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. He says that my discovery of divine has been a pilgrimage of reason, not of faith. So basically, uh, if we if contrast these two uh, statements, uh, both are, both were, uh, rather one of them was, uh, you know, the greatest atheist of his time. And now he is, uh, uh, Rather, of course, is no more, but uh, then he changed his mind. But that that he says that this was his pilgrimage of reason, not of faith. So the literal definition of atheism or atheist, according to uh, this Merriam-Webster dictionary, is a person who does not believe in existence of God or any you know uh, gods or that that sort of thing. Etymologically, in Greek, it means a plus theos, A means without and theos means God, so without God. So there are many hues and colors in the spectrum of atheistic belief. Although it may sound strange, but it is true that there are some kind of atheists who believe in some higher power or spiritual force. Atheism is not mutually exclusive with respect to some religious and spiritual belief systems. Atheism seems to be as old as the God is. World's greatest thinkers and philosophers were of this worldview. Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher, once said humanity is merely a curious accident in the backwater. Among the six orthodox schools of Hindu philosophy, 
also known as Shad Darshanas, Sankhya, the oldest philosophical school of thought, does not accept God. Atheistic, we call we call it. Uh, there there have been two Sankhyas. One is uh, uh, this uh, Sankhya, which is specifically the Shad Darshanas talks about. Uh, that was by atheistic Kapil Kapilamuni, and another Sankhya in Shrimad Bhagavatam, which is Bhagavad Sankhya, which is theistic Sankhya. So here we are talking about the uh, Sankhya in Shadarshanas. And also, uh, the early Mimansas also reject the notion of God. The thoroughly materialistic and anti-theistic philosophical Charvak or Lokayata school that originated in India around 6th century BC is probably the most explicitly atheistic school of philosophy in India. Now, uh, as far as the statistics is con concerned, uh, as per Wikipedia, there are around 450 to 500 million positive atheist agnostics worldwide. That comprises around 7% of the uh, world population, with China having the most atheist in the world, 200 million convinced atheists. And some data shows that their religion is on the decline. So I was reading one report uh, uh, in preparation for this. And uh, in a recently published uh, article in Foreign Affairs, and the name of the article was Giving Up on God, the Global Decline of Religion. And that, uh, uh, that data claimed that between 2007 and 2019, the importance of religion has declined in most countries. The average importance declined in 39 countries and increased in only five. Hmm? That means, uh, according to this particular report, that the, there is a global decline of religion. However, out of uh, natural curiosity, uh, we humans ask questions. Stephen Hawking, in the brief history of time, mentions, we find ourselves in a bewildering world. We want to make sense of what we see around us and to ask, what is the nature of the universe? What is our place in it? And where did it and we come from? So to answer that curiosity, let us hear the profound words of wisdom from Dr. Howard J. Resnick on this wonderful topic. Then we shall open the floor for question and answer. But before starting that, uh, let me give a brief biodata of uh, uh, Dr. Howard J. Resnick. Can somebody share the biodata, please? Yes. So, uh, Dr. Resnick is a distinguished teacher of ancient Bhakti Yoga tradition of India, has written and taught for over 50 years throughout the world. Most notably, he is the first Westerner in history to, to successfully translate and comment upon the canonical Bhagavad Puran from within the tradition. Dr. Resnick received his PhD in Sanskrit and English Indian studies from Harvard University. He specialized in the teaching of the history of philosophy and religion within South Asia. He has also published articles with Harvard, Columbia, and University of California Presses. Having lectured at the leading universities throughout the United States, Europe, India, and South America, Dr. Resnick is sought after as a speaker for college universities, divinity schools, civic groups, and religious organizations of all kinds. Here is a glimpse of his literal work, Srimad Bhagavatam, 11th Canto, Srimad Bhagavatam, 12th Canto, a comprehensive guide to Bhagavad Gita with literal translation, quest for justice, select 
tales with modern illuminations from mahabharat and vaikhanasa mantra prashna uh, fifth to eighth uh, harvard oriental series and justin davis currently he is working on an extraordinary reflections on mahabharat so let us invite uh, uh, dr resnik for this uh, wonderful session today and then we'll have question answers yes thank you very much prem kishor thank you for your introduction and um first i would like to comment on a few things you are uh, i think uh, you are muted oh can you hear me no i can hear i can hear yeah i'm not muted okay all right so some people would like to mute me but um i'm not muted here so first i'd like to comment on some of the points you made and uh number 1 dawkins uh Dawkins is not taken seriously by in general by scholars for the simple reason that he breaks the first rule of scholarship serious academic scholarship and that is he makes claims outside his area of expertise right. so that he has absolutely no academic training in the history of religion in the philosophy of religion in the sociology of religion and the psychology of religion he's a complete amateur so basically he's making a fool of himself from the point of view of scholars and his his uh, sort of cartoonish uh descriptions of history and religion are not taken seriously by scholars but uh, but he has become a poster boy recently because of yeah his, but uh... but you know yeah being a fool is almost a qualification nowadays to be you know to be a star <laughs> So another point another point is that atheism is simply bad philosophy not because it's impious or it's you know it's because religious people like us don't like it no it's bad philosophy in terms of philosophy because philosophy is not supposed to be simply a platform on which you tell us all your feelings philosophy is supposed to be an enterprise in which you reason toward conclusions based on evidence or based on logic the evidence can be for example logical necessity as in the typical example always given that all human beings are mortal socrates is a human being therefore socrates is mortal so if if certain uh, premises are true then there's certain conclusions that must also be true logically So he does none of that. In fact, atheism if let's say there's no god. That means it's uh, pretty much certain that no one is omniscient. No one knows everything because if someone literally knows everything, it kind of walks and talks like a god. And so if no one knows everything, no one knows if god exists. So so to say that i know that god exists is simply bad philosophy someone's just being silly and so if someone's an agnostic by the way a word which comes from sanskrit agnani so if someone is an agnostic they can say i don't believe there's a god or i you know haven't seen enough evidence we can say okay fine but to say that there is no god which is really the position of atheism as opposed to agnosticism is simply it's simply absurd uh 
Secondly, well, not thirdly or fourthly, whatever, I'm losing track of the numbers. There's so many things to say here. But, but if we say that religion is declining, there are reasons for that. Other things are declining, like civility, like moral principles, like people's respect for each other. If you look at the political polarization, certainly in America, where I remember when I was younger, I mean, people, let's say, who were liberal or conservative could actually talk to each other. Those days are gone. And so what we're really seeing, or for example, there used to be a certain amount of modesty in the world. That's gone. It used to be, I remember when I was growing up, that if someone was just, you know, a little modest, that was respected. A little, a little touch of humility, not you know, complete uh, self-doubt. But if someone had a, just a touch of modesty, a touch of humility, that was considered a virtue. Now we live in an age of collective narcissism where everyone says, you're perfect the way you are. Really? Can you show me one human being who is perfect exactly as they are now? And so all concern with objective reality has been put aside and the new God that everybody worships is self-esteem. And uh, so we live in practically in an age of collective narcissism. People are giving up even the idea that they're experts in different fields. Of course, I'm not. Uh, I do actually watch the news every day from India. So I have some idea of what's going on in India. But, um, but in general, uh, this sort of postmodernism where there are, you know, post-objectivity, that everyone's opinion is just as good as anyone else's opinion on anything. So there are alternative facts. I didn't grow up that way. I mean, for example, if I, if I say right now, okay, uh, I'm not actually in, in Southern California right now. I'm actually on one of the outer rings of Saturn. Then, I mean, the idea that uh, I have my own reality when I was you know, growing up, if you said that, you probably people want to take you to a, you know, a, 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 a psychological clinic. So no, I mean, you have your own reality in terms of your psychological reality. You have privileged access to the contents of your own mind. But to say that the contents of your mind correspond to reality or there is no reality, I mean, how could you fly planes that way? How could you, how could doctors and hospitals treat patients that way? So this idea that everyone, so in all the different aspects of life, in terms of medicine, in terms of science, well, I mean, other branches of science, in terms of military operations, in terms of business, if you get back a marketing report that says this product you want to produce is a disaster, no one's going to buy it. But you say, well, you know, in, in, in my reality, everyone will buy it. You're going to go be you're going to become very poor very quickly. So therefore, somehow or other, even though in all the practical aspects of life, you do not have your own reality, unless you're talking about your psychological reality, not the objective reality in the world. Somehow or other, when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to God, everyone thinks they have a right to have their own reality. Which is just kind of like metaphysical narcissism. And so therefore, what I'm saying is, if you say that less people are religious, yes, but less people also behave like human beings. And, you know, it, it said, there's a, there's a wonderful Sanskrit saying that Prabhupada used to quote a lot that, ahara nidra bhaya maitunam cha samanyam etat pashubhinarana, 
which means that as far as ahara, eating, nidra, sleeping, uh, ahara, nidra, bhaya, and defending oneself, you know, because something is threatening, or maituna, or sexual, sexuality, the great Vedic culture says, samanyameta, this is the equality. Sama means equal, from which, by the way, we get the Sanskrit, uh, the English uh, 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 prefix homo, like homogeneous. Homo is just samo in Sanskrit. The S becomes an H, which you know that. So anyway, samanya from the word sama. Samanya means equality. Etat. Samanya metat. This is the equality. Pashubi narana of naras, of human beings, pashubi with animals. So basically, we the real religion today is animalism, vanity, ego, uh, shameless bodily gratification. If you want to talk about what's the religion of the age. And so because dharma, which, you know, we could talk for hours and hours about what that word means, but basically it means higher principles. We'll just leave it at that for now. It means higher principles. So the, the special ability of human life is declining. So in, in a, in a, in a society in which to become a Mahapashu is the goal, would you expect people to understand higher consciousness? Would you expect them to understand God? So the result is not that it's what we don't have is, is you know, millions of, or billions of people who are sitting down quietly with all of their philosophical training, their deep grasp of logic and analyzing their own deepest intuitions and coming to a philosophical conclusion that maybe I, I don't need to be religious. I mean, does anyone really think that's what's happening? So therefore, this idea, this tyranny of the masses, because as we know, uh, nowadays, if you take a survey and, and more people think this than that, then that becomes reality. Never mind the ignorance of the people, never mind, for example, in America, they take all these political polls like they do everywhere. So if you actually interview the people to see what is your level of understanding, like they'll ask a question like, do you think um, the president is doing a good job in foreign affairs? Why not ask the people if they have any idea what foreign affairs even are? So there's this kind of uh, absurdity nowadays that if more people think this than that, then this is more objective than that. So I'll move on quickly because I have 20 minutes before I... Uh, you throw me to the lions. Anyway, uh, as far as Sankhya, actually it's a cliche among scholars to say that the oldest Sankhya is atheistic, which is actually not true. It's just, a, it's just, I mean, if you look at academia, basically what happens is that almost all scholars are burrowed into a certain specialization and have very little idea what's going on elsewhere. Science is like that. And so then they just, take it for granted, they just sort of take on faith what other scientists say. And uh, I'll give you an example of how, of what this is about. There is something, there's a belief that you'll find virtually in every Hinduism textbook, everyone, at least every Hinduism textbook, you know, history of Hinduism written either by a Western scholar or let's say not everyone, but the overwhelming majority, a Western scholar or, let's say, an Indian trained in the Western system of academia. 
And that is that the Bhagavad Gita uh, cannot be older than Buddhism. In other words, we say 5,000 years ago, they'll say, no, actually, it's, you know, it must be at least a couple of centuries after Buddhism started in India, approximately 2,500 years ago. Why? Because in chapter five of the Bhagavad Gita, I think it's chapter five, several times Krishna uses the word nirvana. He talks about Brahma nirvana. Nir, of course, in Sanskrit means without, and vana means like the current. So when you stop the current of samsara, birth and death. So because Krishna uses the word uh, nirvana, so Brahma nirvana actually says, so whoever spoke the Gita or wrote the Gita, uh, it's after Buddhism. Now, I was on the premier academic Indology conference in the world. All the best scholars from Oxford and Harvard and Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, you know, all the best scholars, all the best Sanskritists, Indian, Western, all the best scholars, Indologists in the world. And I, I posted the following text. I said that... Um, there are three logical possibilities here. One is that Krishna in the Gita borrowed the term nirvana from Buddhism. Another possibility is that Buddhism borrowed the term from Krishna. And the third logical possibility is simultaneous use of the word without any borrowing. And so I said, what hard evidence do we have not someone's theory. What hard evidence do we have that Krishna borrowed from Buddhism? And the result was this very loud silence. No one actually knew. Everyone was teaching it in their classes, and no one knew why they were teaching it. And so, if you want to talk about scholarship, so actually, the earliest theism we find, or at least belief in divine power, is much, much older, much thousands of years older than the so-called Sankhya. It's called the Rig Veda. So the idea that the oldest Sanskrit texts are atheistic is doubly false. It's false because there's an earlier Sankhya, which was theistic, and which actually predates the Bhagavatam even. And there's a and also we have the Vedas, which are very much theistic and uh, are much, much earlier than the atheistic Sankhya. So, so much for that. Uh, I just wanted to <laughs> touch on uh, those points. So uh, did I use up my 20 minutes or? Uh... Uh, I think uh, um, still uh, five, seven minutes to go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get my money's worth here. So um, as far as God, it's um, when you design an experiment, because you don't know that something is out there, let's say empirically, but you suspect it's out there because to give an example uh, about what would it be 30 years ago and earlier, of course, Astronomers believed that there must be something they call brown, brown dwarfs. A brown dwarf basically means some celestial body that was trying out for the star team 
but didn't make the team. Because in order to become a star, you know, all kinds of internal combustion has to happen and, and the star heats up and then a star is born. And so they reasoned that some celestial bodies are sort of, you know, on the uh, star track, not track, they're on the star track, but they just, you know, didn't make the team. They didn't actually become hot enough, didn't become stars. And so they're just kind of these, uh, you know, never been kissed celestial bodies. So they, um, you know, they're brown dwarfs. And I remember I, at the time, I was an undergraduate. I was finishing up my undergraduate studies at UCLA. And um, so I had an astronomy class because I had to take a science course and I'd always avoided it. So I, so I took an astronomy course. And um, so we watched a little film from uh, another astronomer who actually also taught at UCLA, who was talking about brown dwarfs and they hadn't found them yet. And he was, it was like a pep talk. It was like a pep rally you know, before a big cricket match or something. And he was saying, you know, we know they're out there and we're going to find them. And it was just kind of getting the team all enthusiastic. <laughs> and what, so, and of course, the end of the story is they did find brown dwarfs. But here's the point I want to make. And that is, if you think something's there and you, you're looking for it empirically, you design an experiment or you design a some type of instrument like a thermometer or something else, which will detect or seems like it would detect a particular force or body or whatever, if it's out there. So experiment design, ex let's talk about experiment design is based on what you think you know about something, even though you haven't proved it. Now, it's a logical fact that you cannot look for something about which, A, you don't know anything, or B, uh, you, you, you have, you're not, well, let's just say you don't know anything or you don't think you know anything about it. How you design an experiment? For example, if I say that if I, if I put a public announcement, I will give a million dollars the first person that can prove or bring me a, uh, a quirk quack. And if someone says, what is a quirk quack? I say, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Well, they will tell us something about it. Is it an energy? Is it an object? Is it? I'm not going to tell you. How will you look for it? It's logically impossible to look for something about which you either. Oh, those are the two points. Actually, I was right. See that my friend Ritavajaswamy, he says, he says uh, I only made one mistake in my life, one time. I thought I was wrong. So anyway, <laughs> if you if you actually know something about it, that's a joke. If you know something about it, or you suspect something about it, then you can search. So now, how do you? Let's say you're searching for God, and let's say the God we're searching for conceptually, and let's say we're agnostic, we don't know if God exists, but we're looking for God. And so if God exists, like a brown dwarf, what would very likely be the characteristics of God? And so the very likely characteristics, according to all the reports we get, it's like, let's say, suddenly you get thousands of people saying they saw Bigfoot, you know, somewhere in Northern Europe, 
And they all say, yeah. And Bigfoot was actually purple, which I didn't expect. And, and Bigfoot, you know, tends to come out only at a certain time. So if you get reports, you could say, well, maybe this is mass hallucination. Maybe people are all crazy, but they're all saying the same thing. So let's, let's design an experiment which tests the claims about Bigfoot. That's the way you design experiments. So all the claims, I would say, are the overwhelming majority of claims about a god, capital G in this case, because there's also the gods, you know, small g. So let's say if you're designing an experiment to find God, what you'd obviously do is design the experiment around all the billions of claims that have come in over thousands and thousands of years. You can't just say those claims are meaningless, because if you say the claims are meaningless, like, like atheists always say that, it's really stupid, but that doesn't stop them. They always say the fact that most people that ever lived believed in God, most human beings, they say it doesn't prove anything. But if you say that, you're taking a position of radical skepticism about human testimony. What about the fact that most people that ever lived believe there's a real physical world outside your mind? Is that testimony also invalid? But anyway, so, so you have to be careful how you speak about the value of human testimony in general, because it'll come back to bite you. So let's say you design an experiment. Some, some people say there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God. So if we're looking for something which is all-powerful, a controlled experiment is absurd. It's like looking for uh, it's like looking for gold with a thermometer. You can say a thermometer is a scientific instrument or, 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 or trying to find. You know, that's not how you, you need it. The fact that something's a scientific instrument doesn't mean it's appropriate for a particular search. So how do we, based on all of our human experience, how do we detect things that are more powerful than us and therefore are not subject to controlled observation or controlled experiment? The answer is very simple. You have to please them. For example, let's say someone wants to get into an IIT. And, and uh, let's say the person trying to get into IIT did reasonably well in their studies, lower studies, but is not like an obvious next Einstein or something. You know, it's not an obvious genius and therefore is really going to have to get down in the mud and compete with everyone else to get into this IIT. Now, you to get, in other words, to get the powers that be in an IIT to admit you, you have to persuade them. You have to please them. If you get out of college and you want to get a really great job, it's like everyone wants that job. You have to please the employers. You don't subject them to experiments. They'll throw you out in a second. They'll throw you out on your head on the sidewalk. So in every situation where you're trying to get access to someone who's more powerful than you, you have to please the more powerful entity. So if we're trying to design a rational experiment to find God, then obviously you have to try to please that God to see if God exists or not. Like we send all these signals into space looking for exoplanets and we're waiting to see if something comes back. So what's the difference between sending signals out and then waiting to see if something comes back and sending signals out to God? 
to see if something comes back. Why is one scientific and the other is not, is just, you know, fanaticism, religion? On what philosophical grounds do you make that distinction? So what I'm trying to say is that we live in an extremely unintelligent age in terms of philosophy, and people are good at you know technical things because that's where the money is. It's like you know go for the money, but in terms of actually having a philosophical grasp of reality, we're in the dark ages. I mean, the world is medieval right now in in terms of philosophical understanding. And if you say, well, but we won't get empirical feedback from God, it may be metaphysical. Well, guess what? In India, for example, or America, in the most important aspects of public life, in the most important aspects of your secular society, you subjugate, you subordinate empirical evidence to metaphysical visions. That's called democracy. I dare anyone to come up with any kind of empirical test that's going to show that every Indian citizen is equal in their athletic ability, their mathematic ability, their artistic ability. Try it. You know, I'll give you a million dollars if you can do that. But the point is, democracy is based on the idea that we're all equal. That means India, India and America and Germany and, you know, so many other places, has subordinated overwhelming empirical evidence to a metaphysical assumption that we're all equal, despite the fact that empirically we are radically unequal. Now, if we really know that everyone deserves equal justice under the law, if you really know that, that means you are claiming that you really know metaphysical facts. And if you, if there, or for example, if you, if you think you really know that it is morally bad, let's say to kill innocent people. For example, when uh, China, I know, you know, India's favorite country right now, when China tried to steal Indian territory, just kind of like, you know, China doing what China does. So when China tried to steal Indian territory, the Indian people were outraged and justifiably outraged. But why? Because they thought this violates justice. This violates the, the, the norms of international justice. That means you think it's real. That's a metaphysical idea. The idea that you should support your country and not betray your country, the idea that we should be ruled by, by law and by justice, those are all metaphysical assumptions. So why is it that in our daily life, all the most important parts of our life are governed actually by metaphysical assumptions, but when it comes to the God metaphysical assumption, suddenly everyone is too smart and too rational and too scientific to consider it. So what I'm saying is in terms of people just being rational human beings, we are living in the dark ages with all of our technology. And, and so, uh, so good luck to all those who are trying to teach Krishna consciousness. <laughs> So maybe I'll stop here. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you uh, for the wonderful thoughts and very thought-provoking um, ideas and uh, you know very very great clarity of thought also. So now the questions are coming up. Uh, the first question is by uh, Vijay Krishnadas. 
and his question is in what measure the search for god could be there making me a non believer in what major search in other words is there a search for god that would make someone a non believer yes is that yes an insincere search a proud search i mean you know it's like get one of those books job interviews for dummies and so you know if you're searching for god but you're not humble and you're not uh, really doing the experiment by trying to really devote yourself then you're not going to get the job you're not going to get into the good college and you won't find god you know the same rules so what we find is that the over that a very strong majority of people when they try sincerely and appropriately they do find something at the other end now some people may say i tried my best and didn't find guess what some people can't replicate experiments in you know biology someone published i mean that's notorious i mean they they found i think the number is that 50% of all the you know experimental findings published in referee journals couldn't be duplicated so it, it's funny because in the world of science they really give themselves space and room but when it suddenly it, it's like what they call moving the goalposts so what i'm saying is let's have the same methodologies let's have the same rules for everyone and and what we find is that most people because someone may say well this is as humble as i can get but you know some people uh, apply for a really lucrative job and they say well i tried my best i followed all the rules but they weren't impressed well maybe you just didn't convince them and it's not necessarily their fault maybe you're not as attractive as you think you are maybe you weren't as persuasive as you think you are and you didn't get the job and the same can happen with god okay so the next question is from uh, brijesh mathur uh, he's saying that during the last two years of the pandemic multiple crises like war climate change etc etc is it right true that more humans are introspecting and evolving spiritually seeking god sessions like this says many more participants going much deeper than before uh i hope you're right i hope you're right i i can't claim that i've been you know closely monitoring the statistics on these things but um i certainly hope you're right and i think if anyone had any common sense they would they would do that if i know in america if you ask just almost anyone i mean it's very hard to find an american nowadays that won't say you know the world is a mess or america's a mess or things are really going badly i mean they've been to I me mean, very few people in america think yeah things are great and even interesting even pre covid because they do these surveys like do you think america is going in the right direction and almost no one does because they you know people buy consumer products because there's nothing else to do and they need certain things and they're attached to their families and therefore they you know they they want to buy they buy things and they want their own comforts but when you ask americans i don't know the numbers for indian surveys but when you ask americans do you think the country's going in the right direction almost no one thinks that so even though people are trapped in this consumerist cycle very few people are actually happy with it 
And so when you said like COVID, which is um, kind of, you know, sort of like absurd society on steroids. So when, you know, when you add COVID, then yes, I mean, a lot of people, some people, some people turn to alcohol or drugs. Some people turn to God. It's, it's, it's an interesting question to see, you know, once the numbers are in, like how people are responding. Adding to this, uh, like we have seen in India, uh, like we started uh, these kinds of uh, programs discussing about the life's questions and uh, deeper aspects of life philosophically. So we have seen a steady increase in the number of audience uh, coming to these programs and trying to understand and even following. They want to follow something. They want some process so that they can be peaceful and happy. They want some spiritual process. So I think uh, definitely there is a, a positive change has taken place because of the COVID pandemic in some sense. Very good. That's, that's really encouraging. Okay, so the next question is coming from Partha Oja. What is the proof that those who have perfected in spiritual life have attained nirvana or have gone back to spiritual place after death? Well, the proof is there, but you have to be a qualified uh, observer. See, we always, we always talk about proof as if we just sit there and do nothing and then everyone comes to us, you know, begging us to believe something. I'll give you an example. I remember when I took my astronomy course, um, we, in our textbook, <clears throat> uh, they, they had in the textbook this uh, article from the New York Times, which was published when um, Einstein discovered one of his big theories. And it was, a, and so the New York Times reporter asked the head of the Royal Astronomy Society of Britain, can you explain what Einstein just proved? Can you explain that so that, you know, our ordinary readers can understand it? And the astronomer said, no, <laughs> I can't because you have to know something about astronomy. So when you talk about proof, when you talk, and, and yet Einstein satisfied the scientific community. If you come up with a scientific proof of something, whom do you have to convince? You know, not some person that's, that's driving a city bus. You have to convince the person, you have to convince other scientists. So if you want to verify that someone is actually, and this is a good point, it's actually a good question because there's so many charlatans nowadays. There's so many charlatans. So if someone claims to be a spiritual leader, but we see that person is very proud, that person doesn't even understand God, or that person is quite, um, what's the word, out of control in their personal life, then uh, we have a right to reject their claim. So, I mean, as far as you having the same experience that this advanced spiritual person, for example, I accepted Prabhupada as my, as my guru in 1969. Wow. That seems like a long time ago. For me, it's just, yeah, yeah, just a few years ago, 1969. So, um, because I had very powerful 
self-evident experiences. It would have been completely irrational of me to deny the objectivity of what I was experiencing. And then when I studied, for example, I mean, being irrational doesn't mean always believing something. Now, here's a, here's a fact to illustrate what I mean. In our culture, there's a very, very, very common term, which is blind faith. You know, no respectable person wants to be caught guilty of blind faith. But from the point of view of epistemology, the philosophy of knowledge, you can just as easily fall into error, illusion, by blind faith or by uh, blind doubt. Because from the point of view of philosophy, for example, let's say someone is sick and there's, there's really a, an effective medicine, but they doubt it, so they don't take it and they die. Blind doubt costs that person their life. Let's say someone is um, psychotic because they don't believe there's really a world out there. So blind doubt is just as is equally dangerous in terms of threatening our ob object objective understanding as blind faith. So here's a simple question. This is like linguistic anthropology. Here's a simple question. Why do we have such a ubiquitous term? Everyone knows the term blind faith, but there is no well-known term blind doubt. So we live in an age where if you are skeptical, that's kind of like intellectually respectable, even if you have no good reasons for it. But if you doubt something, yeah, if you doubt something, that's kind of intellectually respectable, even if you have no good reasons to doubt it. But if you believe something, then everyone's on your case. Like, well, why do you believe that? But if you doubt something, you know, there's no rigor. So our whole civilization in the 21st century is tilted, biased, and so if, you, if, you, if you're looking, for example, let's say you want to buy a computer. And how do you know what a good computer is? Let's say you are not a computer engineer. You look at reviews. You talk to your friends. And you, because you know, every day we have to buy things and we're not, we don't really know that much about the things we're buying. And so we take expert testimony. But then you have to know who an expert is. You have to, so, so you have to look at people who are claiming to know something about God and say, well, what's their behavior? Is their behavior, is their life consistent with what they claim to know? So there are ways to get at this. So, Bob, uh, yes. So the next question is, uh, uh, nowadays, uh, atheists are using conscious machines, deep neural network, uh, example to prove that there is no God. Actually, first of all, they're not using conscious machines because there's no such thing as a conscious machine. And, and to, you see, that's called begging the question. If you assume, which very few 
people actually assume nowadays because it's so absurd that uh, consciousness just means a certain neurological situation that there's no there's no which is of course not true for example there's the argument from qualia so for, so there there's no such thing as a conscious machine that's hollywood that's not science yeah, yeah. so he's mentioning uh, in brackets the deep neural networks when he's writing conscious machine yeah but deep yeah but deep neural networks are built by human beings and and so there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that machines are conscious. So for example, let's say you see a red light, you see the color red. Now a complete empirical description of what's happening there in terms of, in terms of the technology to produce the color red, the biotechnology inside of you, your optic nerve and all that, none of that talks about the experience of seeing red. In other words, imagine a world where no one is actually, no one sees red. You could still give exactly the same mechanistic, neurological, optical description. That here's an object, it's emitting light. You can talk about that in a way that doesn't require any reference to consciousness. You can talk about something emitting light. You can talk about something else perceiving light. In fact, that happens all the time. Like, let's say, for example, you approach a door and it opens, right? Because the door is sending out these signals. You tripped the signals and now the door opens. The door is not conscious. And so to say that there's a certain, uh, and when you say neural, what does that even mean? I mean, it, it, it's almost like there's so much question begging here. There's so much false logic here. There are living things and there are non-living things and, and uh, they're very different and they remain different. And the attempts to create life in the laboratory always cheat because they start with some kind of organic matter. And so, so that's a simple answer. You know, uh, conscious machines, that's Hollywood. That's not science. I think uh, you have already answered. So he wanted to ask that, uh, um, so I'll again uh, reread it. So nowadays the atheists are using conscious machines or deep neural networks example to prove that there is no God. How objectively we can present points within the realm of modern science to refute them. Okay, well, first of all, let's say even if there was a conscious machine, well, there's not. So it's, it's kind of like a non-starter, but why in the world would that prove there's no God? What if God created a world in which people can create conscious machines? I mean, the very idea that to create conscious machines means there's no God. Like I said, first of all, there's no such thing as a conscious machine. And secondly, secondly, even if there was, what in the world does that have to do with God existing or not existing? So one thing you find is that scientists, they... You can get a PhD in science, you never have to take a philosophy class. And it, it's like me talking about microbiology without ever having studied it, or like this clown Dawkins. So, I, I, I mean, the fact is that um, these are philosophical metaphysical issues. And so how would you know if a machine was conscious? Because you have to program it. 
Like, let's say, for example, like in, okay, Hollywood, there's like, it's a whole Hollywood genre. There's a million movies about this. Let's say you make a robot, like an android. It looks like a human being for lonely people. They can have a, you know, a robotic life companion or lover or something. And so let's say that you control the machine, you program it. Okay, I want the machine to show empathy in these ways. I want the machine, when I say this, I want it to respond in certain ways. I want it to embrace me, but not crush me, but not just tickle me. So, you know, you could program the machine in so many different ways. But how would you know it's conscious? What if suddenly, as in Hollywood, this is pure Hollywood, suddenly the machine says, I've now become conscious. You can't program me. I'm a person like you. That's like, you know, like Terminator 3, I think it was, where you know, they say, like, on May 21st, you know, this age, the machines became conscious. And now they're, I mean, this is Hollywood, for God's sake. I mean, I mean, why not believe in Bugs Bunny or Peter Rabbit or, or you know, Donald Duck? Yes. Um, okay. So the next question is coming from Akash Sharma. How can we make a material rationalist understand the concept that every creation has a creator? Because uh, naturally, uh, I, I just I'll just read through the full question. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because naturally, then the ultimate question comes: is who created the ultimate creator? <laughs> yes. So um, first of all, uh, there's no such thing as an atheist rationalist. I, I think it's a contradiction in terms. Because, and 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 never mind religion and God. Now forget the God of religion. Let's just talk about: did someone? design the universe, whether it's a God or not. Maybe it's just some kind of really amazing, super evolved engineer. So if you look at microbiology, if you look at microbiology, what we now know is that Darwin, with his theory of evolution, was operating with an extremely primitive understanding of biology. In fact, it was almost like, you know, sort of chemical, mechanical. And we now know, God, I mean, who knows, thousands of times more about how or living organisms, you know, actually how they work. And so in Darwin's time, he could convince some people that just sort of happened by itself, things bumping into each other, natural selection, random mutation, blah, blah, blah. But now we find that, for example, I mean, individual cells are kind of like fully digital Amazon warehouses. In other words, it's actually, it's, it's, it's information transfer. And, and it's, inf it's not just mechanical bumping and, and you know, burning and this and that, it's information transfer. And so the odds, the probability, if you just use, if, if you, let's say, do probability models based on microbiological events, it turns out it's it's very close to infinitely improbable that the world as we know it arose without any conscious or intelligent input, that without information coming into the system. And so therefore I say that on, on rational grounds, on, on probability, on the grounds of probability, what we know about even physical probability in the universe you cannot be an atheist and rational. I think they're contradictory. 
And so therefore, to say that my best guess, my most rational guess is that something which is, you know, 10 to the God knows how many, you know, exponential number, that it is, is like super improbable, absurdly improbable, like trillions and trillions of times improbable. But that's my best rational guess of where everything comes from. And so microbiology, among other things, is revealing that, let's say, quote unquote, pseudoscientific atheism is a religion. It's not a, it's, it, it, it's not a rational conclusion. And by the way, physical science is not atheist. Because all you can say in physical science is that we have observed certain causal chains, that A appears to cause B under condition C. That under condition C, A appears to cause B. And when I change the conditions, other things happen. That's science. There's nothing about physical science that indicates, favors, suggests atheism. Rather, atheism was adopted as sort of like the religion of empirical science simply because the scientists well, some of them just because they were impious, others because they feared interference from dogmatic, abusive religions. So there's a whole history. You can't understand the history of science unless you know history. So for example, the fact that at a certain point, scientists began to think that religion is the enemy of human progress, of human knowledge, you can't understand why they, that was not a, a decision in a vacuum. Because it's not. Newton, all the, all the greatest scientists were religious. I mean, did, did Newton's very deep religiosity prevent him from being a good scientist? What about Kepler? What about Copernicus? What about that guy Boyle, who's like the first real, what is it, chemist or something? And so, I mean, there's a very long list of many of the greatest scientists in history, including Galileo, who believed in God. So the idea that in order to do real science, you have to assume atheism is absurd, it's philosophical stupidity, and it's just, it's just, it's just bananas, it's a cult. So more and more scientists, more and more scientists are realizing this, for one thing, because religion is no longer threatening. And so now that they're not simply like defending themselves against a menacing religion, more and more scientists are realizing this is really stupid to think that to be a good scientist, you have to be an atheist. There's no good reason for that if you do good science. And so therefore, I, I would argue strongly that you cannot be at the same time in the same relevant sense, an atheist and a rationalist. Uh, uh, adding to your point, uh, like all these um, scientists uh, of the, uh, uh, the era of Newton and other and afterwards, so uh, theology because that time uh, uh, the natural theology is considered as the mother of science. Yes, yes, yeah. In fact, it became popular in the Renaissance to say that God actually gave us two books. Because, you know, the facts is just the Bible, the Bible. So then they began to say, God gave us two books, the Bible and the book of nature. And by the way, sort of, you know, reinforcing what you're saying, 
there was a religious assumption which actually began science as in the modern sense. And that is, it, it, was, it was actually based on a pre-Christian sort of pagan idea. And pagan, by the way, Greco-Roman, what it really is, it's actually just Mediterranean Hinduism. And, and I, could, I could go on and on about that, but if you study Greco-Roman religion, the short version is it's Mediterranean Hinduism. But in any case, among the philosophers, among the philosophers back then, there were these Stoics who had this really interesting idea called the logos theory. And of course, from this Greek word logos, we get the word logic and all the ologies like anthropology, archaeology, this, because that's the logos, the logical, the logic of a particular field. And so what they believed is that God is an infinitely rational being, not an infinitely jealous or infinitely angry or infinitely sadistic being, but actually God is an infinitely rational being. And, and, and that, that infinite reason within God, they called logos. And so when God creates this world, he invests that logos in his creation. Therefore, the creation is logical. And he also invests the logos in us, in, in our minds. We have that same power in a small degree. And so therefore, with the logos within us, that power of reason, we can investigate and discover the logos in all of creation. And therefore we can have a biology. You know, bios means life in Greek. So bios logos, it's just the, the biology, the, the logic of life. And so that's why we can have all these ologies, all these sciences, because it's just, the human being using his or her logos to discover the logos in the rest of the creation. And it was based on that faith, which is, that's by the way, a religious or metaphysical view that Europeans felt that confidence to go out and search for the logos in the world. So uh, another question is, atheists often portray that they are happy, balanced, moral. <laughs> And intellectually fulfilled. <laughs> Actually, the studies. Then why, then why does uh, need God in life if uh, uh, the atheists are yeah. so happy and few, content? Yeah. There's a few problems there. First of all, studies do not show that atheists are very happy and content. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing is that... Um, Atheism, studies show, for example, that religious people tend to be more generous, to give more charity. Their families tend to stay together. They can actually keep their wedding vows. And so if you look at, if you look at moral systems, because without moral systems, we just collapse into absolute savagery, barbarism, kind of like the modern world. But anyway, so... The point is, if you just ask a simple question, historically, historically, where do moral systems come from? The idea that no, if you are sexually attracted to your neighbor's wife, you should not go into your neighbor's house, kill your neighbor and steal and rape his wife, which, you know, that's what they do in some places. So where did the idea come from that you cannot do that? or that you should be generous, or that you should treat people equally, that people are entitled to, where did all these ideas come from? 
from religion. None of these ideas came from, none of these ideas came from atheism. And so the fact is that the atheists, like I said, they're just, they're just not, you can't be a rational atheist. You can be a rational agnostic, but not atheist. They are getting a free ride. They're freeloaders because they're benefiting from all the moral principles, all the civility, which actually came from religious systems. And so they had this idea back in the 20th century. This is like early 20th century. I mean, no one takes it seriously anymore that you know, rational atheists can create a moral social order. Truth, no, they can't. Look at communism. Look at, look at, look at communism. That was their whole idea. They were intellectuals. Marx was a philosopher, you know, he thought. You know, Marx was a philosopher. He was a student of Hegel. Marx comes right in the Western philosophical tradition. And the Marxists, if you, you know, the Marxists, Leninists, blah, 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 Marx, Engels, they tended to be intellectuals. And that was exactly, so, so this bad idea of rational atheism can give us a good society. They already tried that. What did it produce? It produced a system that killed at least 10 times more people than Hitler. If you look at the massacres, the slaughters in the Soviet Union, in China, in Cambodia, where they killed like 10% of the population, that would mean a government in India that killed about 130 million people. I mean, that would make Hitler look like a, just like a, like a Boy Scout or something. Imagine a government in India that, that murdered 130 million people. I mean, it's, there's no word for it. But that's what happened in Cambodia. So they tried that. They tried atheistic, rational society. And guess what they got? The most murderous, evil regimes in the history of the world. So the fact that it's funny, because let's say, for example, you go to a university in India or other countries in the West, and, and you have a Nazi flag. You know, it's not, well, India has a strange relation with Hitler, but, you know, if, 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 if you go to a university and you have a Nazi flag, it probably won't be appreciated. But if you go the sickle and hammer, the communists, it's still like a little sexy for some people. Even though they killed more people than Hitler. And so you have to really be shamelessly ignorant of history to propose that pseudo-rational atheism can deliver the goods in terms of a society that anybody would want to live in. So, uh, great. So another question is coming from Anand. He says, why scientists says that the religion stop us from being progressive? That the religion what? Stop us from being progressive. Well, first of all, most scientists don't say that. I mean, that's like ancient history. I mean, the idea that that's called, by the way, that's called, um, the historians call it the war thesis. 
or the, or the battle thesis. There's a word for it in academic history. And that is that at a certain point, probably, I mean, you really kind of have to trace it back to the, the Enlightenment in France and, and other parts of Europe and the, uh, and the French Revolution. And then and the, the idea that uh, everything should just be rational and uh, religion is just an obstacle to human progress in many, at many levels. And you have, you know, Darwin's bulldog. Darwin, was, Darwin wasn't anti-religion for one simple reason. His wife was very religious. And if he wanted peace at home, you know, he wasn't going to be anti-religious. And so Darwin was actually on the kind of like the, the board, the church council of his local church, you know, because he had a wife and he had kids and, you know, you know what you got to do. And so it was Thomas Huxley, who was this animal. Well, he's called an animal, Darwin's bulldog. And so who compared the priest to, um, he said, just like there was this ancient Greek myth, because they like paganism. There was this Greek myth that Hercules as it was born a little child and then all these poisonous snakes were around him. And he was just so strong. He was a child. He just crushed all these poisonous snakes. So science is Hercules and the poisonous snakes are the priests. So, so you, you get this very unflattering view of religion coming from Huxley. Then you get Marx. It's all part of, they're all the same team. They're playing different positions, you know, on the cricket team. And then you get, then you get um, Marx who says that, that religion is a, uh, it's, it's, an, it's the enemy of social progress because it's just the opiate. People become stupid and drugged and they allow themselves to be shamelessly exploited. And then you get, and then you get um, Marx, not Marx, Freud. You get Freud who says that, um, Freud says that uh, religion is a, uh, an emotional disorder. You know, it's a mental Neurosis. disease. Neurosis, yeah. Yeah, and then you get, you get Edward Gibbons who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire because as people, because how should I put it? Um, because the church, um, because they were shoving down everyone's throat, this sort of, you know, this Judeo-Christian thing. And so therefore intellectuals in Europe tended to gravitate to the pagan things, you know, the philosophers, and to say, yeah, Europe was much better before this fanatical Middle Eastern religion took it over. And so because there was this whole move toward paganism, in fact, at one point in the French Revolution, people even started wearing togas, you know, like in the, like, like in the, in the classical world. And so therefore they began to revisit all these pagan things. And so, you know, like Hercules and all this. And so, um, so Gibbons wrote this book. And, and so therefore the Roman Empire was considered to be a good thing because there was peace. There was the Pax Romana, there was the Roman peace where instead of a world where everyone's fighting everyone else, there was actually order and there were good roads and there was science. And so, and so therefore they look back to the fall of the Roman empire as a disaster. It, it started the dark ages. So why did, why did this you know, rational society collapse? Because it became Christian. That was the thesis of Gibbons because it became Christian and therefore it became otherworldly. And it was just, that's not a serious historical theory anymore. But so you have everyone ganging up, like a dog pile on religion. 
But that's 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 old history. That's not the case nowadays. Obviously, even for example, after Newton, after Newton, you know, for decades after Newton, all the best universities in Europe were still controlled by the church, by the different churches. And so you have this historical phenomenon where you can have a big sea change, you can have a big change in how intelligent people think, but you get these old institutions that change much more slowly. So in the real world now, fewer and fewer people believe this nonsense that you know religion is bad and atheism, rational atheism is good, but the institutions, the universities are like decades behind the intellectual history. So um, anyway, that's what's going on. Okay, so um, uh, one question is coming from Kushle. Atheists justify their statements by mathematical equations. <laughs> I don't know which mathematical equation. Well, that's, but I mean, it's actually exactly the opposite. I mean, all the mathematical equations destroy atheism. Yeah, but spiritualists don't have any mathematical proof or proof how to answer such atheist even. Uh, actually, we do. It's called, um, there's one person who I could put it in the chat. He has a PhD. He's an American. He has a PhD in um, philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England. And I've seen him have many debates on this very point with atheists. And he always wins because philosophically, they're, they're not very bright. Uh... Let's see, Stephen Myers. Uh, oh yeah. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a. Um, I'm gonna send you a link in the chat thing, and you can find a, this is just his website. But in, in, if you go to YouTube and just put Stephen Myers debates, you will see him. Uh, debating all these people. So I'm going to put it in the chat for you. There it goes. And I'll write his name in case you want to look up on YouTube. And if you just put Stephen Meyer's intelligent design, I'll put it in the chat. Yeah, so the idea that, first of all, again, let's go back to the point of, of, of experiment design. I mean, let's say if there's a God who's infinitely superior to us, could you really just mathematically get to him like can you mathematically get a job let's say at apple computers you just mathmat no it, there's a personal thing no matter how good you are you're going to go for a job interview and if they don't think yeah we want you working with us let's say the person trying for the job is really obnoxious or just can't pay attention or just whatever i mean you have to there's a personal side of it and by the way, as I said, all the math nowadays favors intelligent design. That's where all the math is right now. There's no math that favors atheism. They may, you know, try to convince you of that, but they're just like, you know, they're just trying to put one over on you. So uh, in another question, in negation versus acceptance of some metaphysical reality, who does... Uh, Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Who does really carry the burden of proof? Yeah. Okay. If I say, good question. 
if I say, as I do say, that um, I have personal experiences of Krishna, in fact, I would call them the deepest experiences of my life, I would say they're actually more self-evident than even my experience of a world outside me, because sometimes we, you know, have hallucinations or dreams. So, and if someone says, well, I have to prove it to you, uh, why? It seems to me that that's not a level playing field, because if we are, let's say, debating, disputing any particular thesis, how do you assign burden of proof? So it seems to me the atheists assume that we're in charge of this world. We are the gatekeepers of objectivity. And so if you want to pass the gate, you have to you know, satisfy us. But exactly who is it that appointed the, the empiricists as the gatekeepers of reality? In fact, the world's going in the opposite direction because out in the real world, uh, the physicalists or the atheist empiricists ended up with a really big piece of pie on their face. Because the, the basic claim, I'll explain that, the, uh, the basic claim of science for centuries has been uh, basically the word philosophical word is correspondence. In other words, Newton came up with these equations and, uh, and everyone accepted that those equations describe or correspond to the way the world really is. So that there really are celestial objects in motion. There really is a law of inertia and they continue, but then their, their path is bent into a circle by the gravitational field you know, of, of certain celestial objects under certain conditions. So everyone agreed, that's really what's going on. Newton described what's really out there. It corresponds. And then of course, Einstein came along and you know, kind of fine tuned that with his theories of relativity and space-time and all that stuff, uh, which is not, I have to admit, my bedtime reading. But still, you know, Einstein came up with all of that. And everyone again agreed that, okay, when Einstein talks about the curve and the space-time thing, that that's really what's out there. Again, correspondence. So, so you have, if you look at the history of science, even if you go back to Ptolemaic astronomy, which turned out to be not true, although it was ingenious, it just wasn't true, then still that he's describing what the real world is. But then you hit this huge bump in the road. Actually, it's not a bump, it's a wall. You hit this huge wall in the road called quantum physics. And suddenly, uh, you know, despite desperate attempts, it turns out that even though quantum equations work wonderfully well, and to prove that, you just have to look at two words, electron, electronics. <laughs> I mean, that kind of tells you everything about how well quantum physics works. However, because of that 
you know, the, uh, the problem, the, the, you know, particle wave headache and what the scientists themselves called spooky action at a distance. I mean, spooky is not a word that we would expect from scientists. The scientists for centuries were the one that de-spookified everything. It's like it was the, it was the, you know, the Harry Potters of the world and it was the Christians and it was everybody else. They were the spooky people. That was voodoo knowledge. And whereas the scientists were, you know, removing all this spooky pseudo understanding. And suddenly, you know, spooky is in their court. And, and the wave particle, like, so, for, so actually a hundred years ago, and it shows how people in general are literally a century behind the science, at least. Because a hundred years ago, they had this Copenhagen agreement. They met in all, you know, Niels Bohr, all the top quantum physicists, and they actually renounced. They, they at least they were honest. You got to give them credit for that. And they said we can no longer claim that our science, you know, subatomic physics. We can no longer claim that our equations are describing how the world really is. All we know is that they work. I mean, they produce fabulous results, electron, electrons. But we don't know what's really out there. And so at that point, science actually is forced to renounce its claim that it knows what the world is. And so, I mean, they know how certain things behave regularly. And therefore, more than ever, it is absurd it is absurd to say that I'm a materialist for the simple reason that no one knows what matter is. Because if you look at physics, the whole idea of physics was, you see, you have these two opposite directions. In, in spirituality, the idea is you learn about reality by, by studying higher and higher, bigger and bigger things, so you get to God. And then science reversed this and said, no, you understand reality by going to smaller and smaller things. Now, to be fair to Vedic civilization, they knew this. And so therefore there are two directions by which you acquire knowledge in Vedic culture. One is called Samasa, the other is called Vyasa. Uh, and so Asa means placing, like Asana. Asa means placing, setting something somewhere. And some is together, like Sankirtan. So some asa, putting things together, the big picture. What's the big picture? And V means apart. So Vyasa, that's why he's called Vyasa, because he separated the Vedas. So breaking things down to smaller and smaller parts. So that's Samasa Vyasa. So everyone knew these are two ways to get knowledge. So... If you get, to, but the idea that you really understand something when you break it down to its smallest components. So what happens when you can't do that? You know there are smaller things, you just have no idea what they are. So what that means is that ultimately we do not know scientifically what matter is. So if you don't know what matter is, what does it mean to be a materialist? What if it turns out that the smallest what if it turns out that the smallest possible thing is named Vishnu? 
<laughs> and that's and that's actually the information we have. Anora Nian, tinier than the tiniest. Mahato Mahian, greater than the greatest. So to say that the way to go is materialism, we just don't know what matter is, is patently absurd. And so science itself, and that's why, of course, as we know, that's why Einstein got into that kind of that, you know, street brawl with the quantum physicist, because Einstein was not willing to give up the principle of correspondence. Einstein said, if you have a science that cannot tell us what's really out there, it is not yet a mature science. And so therefore, even Einstein rejected the idea that quantum physics is telling us what the real world is. Now, there's another point I wanna make in this because science, I mean, there's, you know, pride leads to a fall and because they've been so arrogant and proud, they've made a lot of stupid claims because that's what proud people do, whether they're priests or whether they're, you know, atheists. So another really stupid claim, and they love to do this because scientists, you know, some of them, a lot of scientists are nice people. They have wives and children and they even believe in God, but they're, you know, the nasty ones. And that is, they, they love to blow our minds by saying things like, huh, look at, look at the, for example, your desktop. You think it's solid, don't you? Ha, ha, ha. But actually, we know that there, it's mostly just empty spaces between these particles. And so they want, in other words, it's like one-upsmanship. You know, we know more than you do. You don't know what the real world is. But actually, they're wrong. Actually, my desk really is solid. And I'll explain what that means. And, and their whole thing, it really is just a bu bunch of wide open spaces with a few things. Um, the reason that's nonsense, I mean, it's true. In one sense, it's obviously true. Or maybe it's true, depending on where physics goes. But here's why it's not true. Because however it got to be that way, it actually is a solid surface. And that's why I can put my glass of water on the desk and it doesn't fall through the desk. So therefore, it's functioning as a solid surface. And clearly, my glass of water could not remain on the desk without falling through it unless there is an energy field, which is solid, in the relevant sense that we use the word solid. So therefore, to be actually like a physical object, you know, there's just one physical object next to another, so it's all solid. That's not what I mean by solid. I mean that it functions as a solid energy field. And there's another point also, and that is the world is teleological. Uh, the Greek word telos means purpose or goal. So, for example, if I ask you the, what science has done, because they wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it, is, you know, a lot of them, they say things like, we used to wonder why the sky is blue. Now we know why the sky is blue. And my, you know, atmospheric science, and my reply is, no, you have no idea why the sky is blue. And the reason is because you are conflating, confusing two words, how and why. So if I say to you, Kishore, if I say, uh, why are you why are you here moderating this program and you say uh i you know we arranged a link 
and then we set it up and then I clicked on the link and then I, you know, and that's, and that's why I'm here. It, it's a linguistic problem because what I meant was, I didn't say, how are you here? If I say to you, you know, why are you in, why, you know, if I say to you, how did you come to this program? And you say, well, I, you know, I wanted to participate. Or if I say to you, how did you get to your office? And you say, because I want to do my job. No, that, that's why you came to your office. And so the questions how and why are different. By the way, this distinction comes from Socrates in, in the dialogue called the Phaedo. So, so the questions how and why, so we know, why, we know how the sky is blue. We have no idea why it's blue, at least not by atmospheric science. And so to say the world is teal, for example, let's say you're an artist and you paint a picture. And so if I ask a simple question, who better understands your painting? Let's say a great artist like Rembrandt, maybe the earlier Rembrandt, he kind of got a little, uh, little bit of a hippie later in life. But anyway, so if you, if you look at the earlier middle Rembrandt, and that's the one I like. And if you say, um, who understands, let's say, his paintings? Who understands Bess's paintings? Is it a qualified art historian or is it a paint chemist? If you want to understand, let's say a great work of art, do you go to a paint chemist or to an art historian? The idea is that when you paint a picture, let's say a real artist, which eliminates 99% you know, of modern artists, but when you, when you paint a picture, and so if you're actually an artist, it's teleological. In other words, you have a purpose. You are painting the picture so that the picture can be observed. You want the picture to be observed. And therefore, when someone looks at your painting, they're fulfilling your purpose. That's why the painting exists. It doesn't exist just because someone thought what the world needs is a bunch of paint on a canvas, you know, chemically. No, because you, you wanted to show something. So therefore... Uh, the, the, the mechanics of why the sky is blue or how the sky is blue, the atmospheric science is subordinate to a purpose. Just like you mix your paints or some you know, company, chemical company produces paints and sells paints, why it's all leading toward the ultimate purpose to produce a painting that people can look at and appreciate. So, um, so yes, why, in other words, why do atoms function in a certain way so that the table is solid? Because God wanted there to be solid tables in the world. And so therefore the solidity is really the point. And it's just and like I'm on my computer screen right now. Why? Because I wanted to participate in the program and all the computer mechanics are serving the purpose. The purpose is not serving the mechanics. So anyway, that's a long explanation, but go ahead. No, no, uh, it's um, uh, going great. And a lot of questions are coming, but uh, uh, because of the time constraint, I think we will have to stop it now. And, perhaps uh, next time, perhaps next time we could go do those other questions. Yes, we can directly start with the questions. Yeah, because I, I really appreciate the people are participating. They're asking questions, which means they're, you know, yeah, really listening. So, and so I would be happy next time to just go straight to those questions. So everybody that has a question gets an answer. 
Yes, yes. So I would request the participants that whoever, uh, whomever question we have not taken today, so we'll try to uh, cover those questions in the next session. Uh, same time, um, probably 7.30. Yeah, uh, so this uh, poster is available, 7.30 p.m. next Sunday. And the I think some of the questions on the second topic, does science rule out gold? We have already started doing discussion on this. So uh, we are already covering it and uh, we'll be taking further questions on this next time. And a uh, <clears throat> few more announcements. Yeah, so if you would like to associate with ISS and its research activities, please uh, do visit this link issdaily.org and join the link is also available in the chat window. So uh, you can join uh, at this link. We also have uh, a special program where we focus on the practical aspect of spirituality, not only just talking. If you really want to uh, practice it, then uh, our program is this art and science of practical spirituality. It comprises of five parts. Uh, we have, uh, you know, starting from Swadhyay directly reading from the scripture and then science and spirituality dialogues. And then uh, we have open heart discussions under Sambandha. Then uh, we also discuss about the, uh, you know, the practical aspects of spiritual life under Sadachar and Sadhana. So these uh, five S, uh, uh, this methodology of ASPS is very, is wonderful. And so whoever want to participate, please, uh, the link is available in the chat window and you can participate. It's all free of cost. The eligibility for that course is um, uh, specifically a minimum graduate in any discipline of science, math, psychology, and philosophy. Yeah, so uh, in May, 2022, we are going to have an international conference on sustainability, simplicity, and spirituality. So this is a, a second conference last year also in 2021, uh, May we had this wonderful conference uh, on the same theme. So uh, you can uh, participate in this conference and uh, you can participate by as a speaker uh, presenting paper also. Yeah, and, uh, and you can also inspire your uh, colleagues and uh, friends in the uh, for participation. And uh, we would request you to be a part of Institute for Science and Spirituality. Do visit our uh, YouTube channel uh, with the same name, Institute for Science and Spirituality, where there are more than uh, 150 uh, different videos on different varieties of uh, science and uh, spirituality or science and religion or science, philosophy and religion topics uh, in this channel. And uh, uh, you can uh, make benefit out of that. And also we have, uh, uh, do visit us on uh, our Facebook and other Twitter handles, uh, other social media handles. Okay, so this is, uh, that's all for uh, today. And I thank uh, once again uh, to uh, His Holiness Sridharandas Goswami Maharaj, Dr. Howard J. Rasnik and, uh, and all the wonderful participants.